0: We're going to start in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. It says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So I know we've been hammering on this and we're going to continue so because it is so crucial today, is the foundation of our faith is based in this, not this book per se, but what is captured inside of it. It's the very words of the Lord himself. It's a documentation of a nation that's gone through all sorts of chaos, but brought forth Messiah. And in bringing forth Messiah, we began to look at and examine what that means and why it's crucial. Because the problem we have today, is, is especially the Americanized church, is we've lost our roots, we've lost our foundation. What we believe is that Jesus came to die for our sins, to take away all of our problems, and that we may live happily ever after. But that is not the reality of it. Has anybody ever, you know, maybe had a bad day? I've had one or two, not a lot, but one or two. You know, overall they're good, but sometimes they're bad. Every once in a while, uh, my wife wakes up grumpy. You know, and Mama ain't happy. Y'all know how that goes, right? She walked away because she knows. I'll get, I'll change the story when she gets back in here. But, but the thing is, is we have, we've got this Americanized version of the gospel. That we think that Jesus came and died on the cross to make us a better person, to give us the things that we want, and so on and so forth. And the problem with that is that we have taken what Jesus has done for us, and we fit it into this cute little package that we can easily give out to people and say, okay, here's this, here's that. The thing is, is what did Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection mean? What was the point of that? Because do you realize, you think about this, we talk about Jesus the Passover lamb. Behold, the lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Here's the thing. The lamb had to be sacrificed. There's no question. But did he have to be beaten? Do you ever think about that? You know, we read the verses, by his stripes we are healed. But the question we don't ask is, why was he striped to begin with? Because that does not fit the Passover narrative. They did not take that cute... Little Passover lamb and bring him into their house and get to know him and love on him leading up to the 14th of Nisan. And then they beat the fire out of him before they killed him. That's not what happened. It's very peaceful, actually, if slitting the lamb's throat is considered peaceful. You know what I mean. So, what did Jesus do? So, let's go to Isaiah chapter 52. I read this a couple of weeks ago, but I want you to catch this. This is one of the Messianic prophecies, there's a number of them. But this is considered the Messianic prophecy. It says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high, just as many were astonished at you. So his visage was marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground, he has no form of comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs, and he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare from his generation? He was cut off from the uh, from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth." Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now that's a mouthful. But this is referring to Messiah. And they believed that this was a messianic prophecy the Jews did. They were expecting him. But at the time that Messiah came, at this point, they were no longer waiting on this suffering servant because they had adopted the belief that this was now the nation. The nation of Israel was the suffering servant. They were the ones that had gone through all the turmoil and all of that. So what were they waiting for? They're waiting for the king. The king to show up to set up his throne in Jerusalem, to overthrow Rome, and once again they will be a free people. That's what they were waiting for. They didn't think any of this was going to happen. The premise behind this is the idea of the substitutionary atonement, where atonement is made on behalf of one group by something else. We saw that in when we were looking at the Day of Atonement and how the high priest would go all through these things and had to sacrifice, and he was a representative of the nation of Israel. And he would sacrifice for himself, making atonement for he and his family. Then he would go into his his work as the high priest, sacrificing for the nation, and go and atone and cleanse everything with the blood. And we talked about Azazel being sent off into the desert and all the stuff we're not going to rehash once again. But all of this coming forth as a representative of what Jesus was going to do when he got here. Now we know, because we've looked at this and seen clearly what Scripture has said, that sin has been atoned for, death has been defeated. And as a result of this, there are certain expectations that we can have from our relationship with Christ, one of which is understanding this new covenant. In this covenant, it is not conditional upon your behavior. You will enter it or you don't. The choice is yours. But if you are in, there is nothing you can do that makes the promises of the covenant null and void. There were covenants that were like that, the Mosaic one being an example. If you keep my commandments, you will be blessed. If you don't, you will be cursed. But you know what never happened? They never stopped being his chosen people. Because that went back to Abraham. And that covenant did not have conditions. They were his people. That was their land. God gave it to them. When they showed up to the promised land that had been promised, what would you do? Would you go into the promised land that God said, hey, all of that's yours. Go ahead and take it. Would you walk in and take it or would you say, um, have you seen the people that are living there now? They're big. We're not. What would you do? All of us, we stand up here, we're almighty and like, you know what I would do? I'd walk up in there, I'd go to the biggest giant's house and say, is mine now. It's mine. You get out. Leave the TV in the recliner. No, we wouldn't. I hear people say, if I had been around at the time of Jesus, I would have recognized Him as Messiah. No, you wouldn't. Because we're not moved by what God's promises is, we're moved by what we see and what we feel. Let's just be honest. The way we act dictates what we believe. That's just the reality of it. If you don't believe in gravity, you have no problem jumping off the roof. Nobody try that, okay? But the thing is, is this is where we are. What did Jesus' work do? Well, what it did was set us free from the law of sin and death. We know that we are now made right with Christ. And therefore, we can boldly enter into the throne room of grace, find it when we need it, every single time, because there is no longer a separation between man and God as long as we pass through the veil. That veil being the flesh of Jesus. His body, broken for you and I, is the veil that separated us from God. And now we can go through Him. And when the Father looks at us, He sees us. Through that mediator, we are made right. And the thing is, is you are literally risking eternity if you believe that. But what if you're wrong? Why do we not accept that we're wrong? Why can we so easily accept that we are right with God, but we can't accept the other promises associated with this covenant? And I'm specifically talking about healing. We come near to Him with our lips, but our hearts are far from Him because we don't believe what He has said. And so as we've gotten into this, we begin to break this down, and we're going to do so more today. So let's read Luke chapter 4. I read this last week. I kind of left you with a bit of a cliffhanger. Verse 16. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, and he said, is this not Joseph's son? Now, I went into what was going on here because we we don't understand this of the custom, but remember, each family had a Torah portion and a prophet that they would be responsible for from the time of Ezra, and so as his custom was, it was now his turn in the rotation. He did not ask for the book of Isaiah. He did not say, hey, can you bring me that scroll? They handed it to him because it was his family's responsibility to read it at this time. Then he stands up. He reads the portion. That he wanted to. And then he sat down on what seat? The seat of Moses. The seat of Moses reserved for Messiah. That's why everybody's staring at him. Okay? And so in doing so, he has now declared, guess what? I'm here. Everybody's like, wait a minute, ain't that Joseph's son? He has now made a declaration. The declaration being is that this messianic prophecy in Isaiah 61 is now fulfilled in your hearing. Here's the problem: He has yet to have done all of these things. He hasn't done them yet. And so, what do we do with that? What does he mean that today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing? Well, we know that when the, the way we must read scripture is in the lens of which they read scripture. In other words, the way things were captured meant something to them. When you write a letter to somebody, if you have a terminology that you use all the time, those who are close to you know what you mean by it. Those who aren't may not have any idea. Okay? We all have them. Do you know what my mother's was? My mother would end every argument with, well, there you go. Now, as you guys know, I'm a classic overthinker. I overanalyze everything. I think on words, and I'm thinking, that's not a response. That's not an argument. And that was her way of just, we're just going to shut this thing down. But that was a sign to me. Had enough, boy. Proceed with caution. Sometimes I did, and sometimes I didn't. But the thing was, is I knew what it meant. For me, you'll hear me say this all the time. You'll ask me, hey, do you want something? i say, no, I'm good. Right, and I—I I may have told you guys this, but I was in the Philippines. They would come up and they say, "Pastor, would you like a cup of coffee?" I'm like, "Oh, I'm good." Would you like something to eat? I'm good. Right? Y'all know what I mean. I don't want nothing. I don't need anything. I'm in a perfect satiation point in my life. All right, I could live off reserves for months and not miss a beat. Right? And finally, one of them asked, "What do you mean you're good?" I said, well, you call those things a be-not as though they were. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what I said. They had no idea what I meant. They just assumed maybe I was a little arrogant, a little cocky, like, oh, no, I'm good. I mean, you're okay, but I'm good. You know? They had no idea, and I never even thought about it. But that's the problem. We do the same thing in Scripture. We read these things, and we think we know what they mean, but we never stop to ask, what did it mean to them? Because the one thing you'll pick up on is there's certainly cultural nuances that are in there, but also when we read in the New Testament a quote from the Old Testament, they are now giving us an interpretation of it. We can understand it in that lens. So in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 4, we see another confirmation of what Messiah is going to do. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 4 say to those who are fearful hearted, Be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongues of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Is that not what Messiah came to do? Absolutely. Does that line up with what we just read in Luke 4, what we saw in Isaiah 61? Absolutely. Does that line up with what Jesus actually did in his time here on earth? Absolutely. So we need to begin to look at Scripture through the lens of what they looked at Scripture through so that we can understand it because there are times and points where they will read something or quote something to give us an understanding of what was going on. Let me give you an example of this, a, a quick one, and then I'm going to give you another one. This one I did not put in my notes because as I was praying this morning, it dawned on me as perhaps I should show you this and illustrate this. This wasn't my plan, okay? But we're going to do something new, some of you maybe have never experienced this before, so we're going to learn and grow together. We are going to turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Your Bible is this paper thing that's been sitting next to you. I'm nice, and I put them up on the screen for you so you don't have to work your fingers out. Some of you are like, wait a minute, I didn't bring one. Do we need one here? And that's okay. You got a phone. Or you can just listen along. Acts chapter 1. Go to Acts chapter 1. Now, what do we know about Acts chapter 1? Acts chapter 1 is picking up at the end of the gospel where Jesus tells everybody, I want you to go wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes upon you so that you are endued with power from on high. Why were they waiting to be endued with power from on high? They got a big job to do. They can't do it in their own strength. So they need to go forward underneath the power of the Holy Spirit to perform what Christ has told them to do, to spread the gospel to all the world with signs following. Now, once Jesus has ascended, they're sitting there amongst themselves, and they're having a conversation. Peter seems to be in charge at this point. Look at verse 15. Acts chapter 1 and verse 15. It says, and in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of all the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120, and said, so how many people are there? 120, very good. Men and brethren. This scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before the mouth of David, by the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, stop. So, according to what Peter is saying, David said something inspired by the Holy Spirit directly about Judas. Is that not what we just read? Did David know Judas? No, they never met. That's because there were several hundred years between them. Okay, so whatever this is, this is interesting. Verse 17, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in the ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field is called in their own language, Akel dama, which is field of blood for it is written in the book of Psalms. Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, Uh, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, you know the hearts of all. Uh, Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in the ministry and the apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. They're looking for number 12, right? They need to replace number 12. They settle on Matthias by casting lots. Some will say that, you know, that's not who God wanted, because God wanted Paul. We don't read about Matthias again in the book of Acts at all, but uh, if you study church history, he was very active, planted numerous churches, very involved. But the thing is that I want to look at is not who they chose, but the fact that they felt compelled to do so. Because they said it was from the mouth of David, who wrote the Psalms, the majority of them about Judas specifically. It was, let his dwelling place, verse 20, be desolate and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Now, these are two different Psalms. Now, we're going to do something that a lot of people don't. We're going to go look at those Psalms, because you're going to see very clearly they are a reference to Judas. So the first one is in Psalm chapter 69. You may have footnotes, and if you do, that's why they're there. They tell you where to go. Psalm chapter 69. 69. We're not going to read this whole thing. Verse 25 is where it is. But let me, let me just start at verse 22 to catch a little context, okay? Let their table become a snare before them, and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their divine place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents, for they persecute the ones you have struck. And the talk of grief to those you have wounded, add iniquity to their iniquity and let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Did you catch the part about Judas? Neither did I. So we see the quote there. Let's go to the other one. Psalm 109, one, Psalm one hundred nine, verse 8. I'll start at, uh, how about verse 6? Set a wicked man over him, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds, and beg. Let them seek their bread also from their desolate places, and so on, and so on, and so on. Did you catch the part about Judas? Neither did I. Isn't that interesting? Because here's what we know. Peter... Knew the Scriptures. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit because Jesus breathed on him, said, receive the Holy Spirit. Wasn't a dude with power from on high yet. And the other part is, is we know that Jesus opened up their eyes to the Scriptures so that they could understand in a way that perhaps nobody ever again has. Why would he take these two obscure Psalms and apply them to Judas? My guess is because that's what the Holy Spirit intended for them to be. Do you see how we, if you were reading those Psalms, when we read the Messianic prophecies, it's pretty clear because we have foresight, or hindsight, I should say. But when we read that, there's nothing about that. It screams like, Judas, no doubt, right? There's nothing there. The context doesn't make sense. But yet, the interpretation and the inspiration of the writers of the New Testament is showing us what is going on here. Do you guys see that? It's important to get that going forward. Now, Let's move on. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. It says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Now, what did we just read? We just read a passage that gets quoted oftentimes. Can you please God without faith? No. It's impossible. Because what is faith? Faith is not blindly believing. Faith is putting your hope, your trust, in what he has done. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Whoever comes to God has to believe that he is. Now, what does that mean? That's interesting, isn't it? Because remember what he said to Moses? Tell them that I am sent you. You see, he's all-encompassing. He's everything. You must believe that he is. You must believe that he exists. You must believe that He keeps His promises, that He is who He says He is. You're putting your faith in Him, not His characteristics. His characteristics are the overflow of who He is. You will know them by their fruit, right? You recognize a tree based off of what's hanging on the branches, be it the leaves or an actual fruit, but the fruit is not who it is it doesn't try to produce apples. Its essence is a tree that produces apples. Does that make sense? Am I confusing anybody? I'm just making sure you're getting this. So we're not putting our faith in God's characteristics. We're putting it in Him. So you have to believe that He is, and He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Diligently means that we are not happening across different things, I get my Bible time in here and there, I go to church once in a while, I spend time praying every now and again, there's an intentionality to diligently seeking after the Lord. In other words, God is not a part of my life, God dictates my life. Every day, every morning, I wake up, God, what are we doing today? Where are we going today? Who am I speaking to today? Instead of we do everything else and we try to squeeze some God time in every once in a while. We have to believe this. It's in His Word. So if those, this passage is true, that we know that God will reward those who diligently seek after Him, as long as we believe in what He has said and what He has done and who He is, right? So now let's look at Matthew chapter 4. Here's another one. Another use of the Old Testament, which is interesting. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Now, this is where Jesus being temptation. There are three temptations going We're only going to look at the first one. Okay? Understanding this. This is sort of a supernatural undoing of what the Israelites got wrong. Because he specifically references things that they had done where they did not believe that he was. They doubted what God was going to do, even though he had taken them through the Red Sea. Got them out of he Everything he said he was going to do, they still continue to doubt him and murmur against him. Here we go. Matthew chapter four, verse one. Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterwards, he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered, it is written, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What was his response? He quoted Scripture, okay? Again, we're going to do something that most people won't do. Let's go look at that Scripture. Let's see what it says. Let's look at the context of it. How about that? Because he is using this to overcome a temptation. Well, does that mean we can too? Let's look at it. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. Every commandment which I commanded you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you should remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these forty years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, he allowed you to hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know nor did your fathers know. What is manna? Spread from heaven. That he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? But man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And that there is the key. Do you need bread to live? Yeah, take that, keto. Right? We're intended to eat them carbs. I bet they was gluten-free manna. I guarantee it. It's not that we don't live with that, but what makes man live? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Of the Lord. What is this? Every word that proceeded from the mouth of the Lord. What did we hear this morning? A word that proceeded from the mouth of Connie that originated from the Lord. Okay? What do we live by? We must believe that He is, and He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Do you guys see how crucial this is? You see, how did Jesus view what we call the Old Testament? These were the words of the Lord. He used them in defense against the enemy. He was being tempted with hunger. Fair enough, 40 days, that's a long time. And he overcame them by the word of the Lord. Because what does man live by? How do we live? We live with this, not by this. And that is a problem. Because when we hear something we don't like, we dismiss. When we see something that doesn't line up, we just accept it. You ever think about that? Look at the New Testament. Look at the book of Acts. The miracles that took place. And we have settled with the fact that those are now very rare and mostly happen in foreign countries. We've created a theology of where God doesn't heal today. He used to until Scripture was formed. Or we've created a theology of sometimes God does heal, but only if it's His will. Or we create a theology, well, God heals everybody, that's His will, but we just don't know. What if I told you that... It was God's intention that healing was tied into this. In other words, we don't have to ask what God's will is in the subject. If I ask you, is it God's will for all people to be born again? We would vehemently say, yes, of course. And if I say, is it God's will that all should be healed of physical ailments? And most of us say, well, sometimes or something along those lines. And the truth is, we are not living by this. We have added this a little bit to our lives. We're not being driven by this. We fit this in where it's convenient. Sometimes that's a tough pill to swallow, but that's reality. Now, I have told you, and I made this statement, and now I'm going to prove it to you. The idea that healing being in the atonement, we know that sin has been atoned for. But we need to understand exactly what that work entailed. We have no problem accepting the fact that our sins are washed away, we're washed in the blood of the Lamb, all that kind of stuff. Where do you think that term came from? Washed in the blood? Were they dunking people in blood? No, of course not. It was the cleansing, the atoning for. It was all of that stuff going on. So what all did that include? Let's go to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. Surely He has borne our griefs, and He's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken smitten by God, and afflicted. Now, I've told you the word griefs and sorrows is not the word griefs and sorrows in the Hebrew. As you guys know, Hebrew words have multiple meanings, and depending on the context, it will show up in a certain way a lot of times. I've showed you this, uh, the Young Living Translation, Surely our sickness he hath borne, and our pains he hath carried them. And we have esteemed him plagued, smitten of God, and afflicted. Okay, young, Mr. Young, has taken it upon himself to use what's called a literal translation to just say, what do the words mean? Okay, so where do we get this? Well, the word griefs is the Hebrew word koli. Forgive me if I did not pronounce that correctly. Here are some of the meanings that go along with this. Sickness, affliction, disease. There's grief, there's griefs. Illness, sick, sickness, sicknesses. You see those numbers associated with those? That's how many times they are used throughout the Scripture, specifically the Old Testament in this case. So we see grief and grief is only used two times. Everywhere else, it is something associated with sickness. So how should we begin to interpret something? We've got to look at how that word is used throughout Scripture. So let's go look at a few of these. Because what if I'm wrong? What if I'm making this up? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 15. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you. The word sickness there is the word koli, same word, same Hebrew word, okay? Now, let me ask you a question here. Do you think in any way God was referring to not sickness here? No, of course not. Physical ailments, right? Not spiritual sickness. Are you spiritually sick? Because some will try to use that. We are healed spiritually. We'll get into that next week. Let's look at another one. Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 61. Also, every sickness and plague, which is not written in this book of the law, will the Lord bring upon you until you are destroyed. Do you think it's sickness? Same word. Same exact word. What do you think he's talking about there? How about 1 Kings chapter 17 verse 17? Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick and his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. What do you think he meant there? Was he spiritually sick? No, he had a physical ailment. It's how that word has been used. Here's another one. 2 Chronicles chapter 16 Verse 12, and in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet, and his malady was severe, yet his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. The word disease, want to guess what that word is? Now, we could preach on this, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians, we could preach on that all day long, because this is implying what? Why didn't you seek the Lord? As if, had you done this, perhaps this would have been taken care of for you, but you sought the physicians instead. I'm not coming against doctors. Don't no misunderstand me. You see, we see the use of this word, and we could do this all day long. Because as you saw, the vast majority of these translated is sickness, disease, infirmity, something along those lines. So when we read Isaiah fifty-three verse four, it says, "Surely He has borne our sicknesses." It's how it should be read. You guys see that? Do you guys understand that? Do you guys agree with that? I mean, is there any doubt that that is what it says? I'm not just making this up. Do you realize that it is a lot easier for me to not believe that God heals today? Do you know why that is? Because when I pray for people, if there's no expectation, then I can't let them down, right? But I can't help myself because I can't get away with what Scripture says. This is what it says. He has borne our sickness. What do you think He meant by that? Perhaps, I'm just speculating, that He bore our sickness, carried it upon Himself, Well, what about the next part? And he carried our sorrows. This is the Hebrew word pain. It comes from makab, M-A-K-O-B. Makab. Let's see this used a couple of times. Job 14, verse 22. But his flesh will be in makab, pain over it, and his soul will mourn over it. Job 33, verse 19. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with strong pain in many of his bones. Again, makab. Jeremiah 51 verse 8, Babylon has suddenly fallen and been destroyed. Wail for her. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she will be healed. What do you think it's talking about here? Why do you think it's been translated the other way around? I don't know the answer to that. But is there any doubt of what these Hebrew words are? The answer's got to be no. No. You see, we've read out of Psalm 103, forget not His benefit, who heals all your diseases. Was that just some cute thing that David was writing? Or was that a confident expectation of how God will respond each and every time based off the characteristic of who He is? Because He can't help but overflow healing because it is who He is. Is that a possibility? You see, there's a reason we don't walk in this health and the, and, and the blessings that God has is because... We are not driven by this. This is just a small fraction of our lives. We don't want to go to church on a not Sunday morning because there might be a ball game on or something along those lines. We got something else going on. We can't can't be there. We can't dig into this to understand exactly what God's promises are. I mean, let me ask you this. If God has promised it, is there anything that keeps you from receiving it? If you don't believe it. You can't have what you don't believe. If you do not believe that everything in here is yours, then you won't receive it. There's just no way. If you don't believe that salvation is for you, it's for everybody else, but not for you, then guess what? You're probably not going to get born again. You know why? We've got to come to Him by faith, and He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Now, Jesus said that these words were fulfilled today in your hearing. And I talked about this last week, of how... When we read that, it's a powerful statement because they had not yet been fulfilled. He was kind of getting ahead of himself, so to speak. He's out there, he's saying, okay, this is exactly what is going to take place. And we know, what did he do? He went around healing the sick. As you guys will see in the weeks to come, he would go, he'd preach the gospel, he'd teach the word, he'd heal the sick. Those three things everywhere he went. Almost like he's creating a pattern for us to follow. I don't know. But how they read Scripture matters. And how they interpret things matter. Because the book of Matthew, the book of Luke, the the book of Romans was not written to you. It was written for you. But it was written by somebody to a group of somebodies with a specific context included. And then you take the fact that these guys had their eyes open to the scriptures in an understanding that we probably don't have today. And because of that, when they use an Old Testament passage, we can bank on it that it's correct. Is there any doubt that Jesus believed that the Old Testament was the inspired Word of God? If he didn't, I don't know why he quoted it so much. How about the rest of the writers in the New Testament? Do you realize they quoted it a ton? Do you realize that in the book of Revelation alone, there are over 800 either direct quotes or allusion to Old Testament passages? That's a lot. And that's the weirdest book out of all of them. There's some crazy stuff. So if that is true, how should we look at Scripture? I think we should look at it the way they did. So do you guys believe, based off of what we've read so far, looking at Isaiah 53, that there's any doubt what God had included inside of the work of Jesus at the cross in the atoning sacrifice that He made, including healing? I hope you say, there's no doubt in my mind. I see that. Well, let me put the proverbial nail in the coffin, if you will, okay? Which is weird because we're talking about healing. Let's open the lid of the coffin and climb out of that sucker. How about that one? Let's look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When he had come down from a mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshiped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Was that a true statement that he made there? Absolutely, Lord. If you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, "I am willing. Be cleansed." Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, "See that you tell no one, but go your way. Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them." So now, what was he supposed to do? He's supposed to take two birds to the priest. Only the priest could declare him clean. He would begin to look at him. He would inspect him. He check his clothes. He do all this stuff. If he called him cleansed, they would sacrifice one of those birds underneath moving water, living water, and the other one that they would release. He would then be declared clean. He'd have to sit for a certain amount of time. There's this whole process and stuff. And now finally, he is declared king. Clean. Who could heal leprosy? Only God, because they believed it was given by God. So only God could do this. We don't have any examples in the Old Testament. Look at verse 5. Now when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Jesus said, I'll come and heal him. You notice that he didn't ask him to come. He's just telling a story. What was Jesus' response? I'll come and heal him. Right? The centurion answered, "said Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Is that a true statement? Technically, yeah. Jesus isn't supposed to go under his roof. "'But only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and my servant, uh, to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, "'Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel.'" And I say to you that many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out in their outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to to the centurion, go your way as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Now let's just stop there for a second. Let's look at this. He said, I've not found such great faith. That's interesting. What was this man's faith in? Jesus. Not healing. He didn't even ask for to be healed. He was telling Messiah what was happening. Must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder who diligently seek him. His faith wasn't in Jesus' ability to heal. His faith was in Jesus. He's drawn there. Now, let's go on. Now, when Jesus had come, verse 14, into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. This is the mother-in-law. Okay. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He cast out the spirits with the word, and he healed all who were sick. Now, what are the two things that he's doing? He's casting out demons and healing all who were sick. These two things were synonymous, were they not? How many did he heal? All of them. Not some. Not if they had enough faith. All who were sick, he healed. Verse 17, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and he bore our sicknesses. A direct quote from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. So in other words, Matthew has taken it upon himself to give us the direct interpretation of what Jesus' work was going to be, but yet was not done yet. Based off of the actions that He took, which was what? He cast out all the demons and He healed all the sick. When you put all of this together, is there any doubt of what Jesus came to do? There can't be. We must allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Not our experience. Not our previous teachings. Not our denominational backgrounds. Scripture has to interpret Scripture. When it says that after healing all of these people, it was to fulfill what was spoken by Isaiah, there can be no doubt what that means in Isaiah. Is that fair? Do you guys see this? Now here's the thing. Had the atoning work been done yet? Not yet. He's laying all of this out ahead of time. Because all of that is about the atonement of what Jesus did. What I'm telling you guys is that with the promise of eternal life and salvation, the atoning work that Jesus did for us, the reason the veil was torn is because the presence of God was no longer there. It had a new temple. And now we boldly enter into His throne room because that veil was the flesh of Jesus. It no longer separates us from God. That work has strings attached to our benefit. Not do these things or whatever. It is for our benefit. What I'm telling you is that we need to get back to believing God's promises. We got to quit making excuses of why we can't do something, why we can't act in a certain way, why things don't go the way we want them to. We need to get back to the promise. Of God. What would happen if we just simply took God at His word and acted as if every word He said is true? Would we be different today than any time before in our past? There is no doubt about it. The problem is we want to make excuses. I'm tired of it. We have got to step up. It's what you said today. We've got to fulfill the promise of God. What brings revival starts inside. We don't need revival for our sake. We need revival for the world's sake. To allow them to see the Spirit of God move in might and power. And you know how He does that? Through His people. If we don't believe this, why should they? If we can't consistently act like this thing is true, then why would they ever believe that it is? It's time we step up, church. We're going to begin to look at this healing thing a lot more in depth because there's a lot of questions, there's a lot of misnomers out there. One, is it God's will to heal all? Because if it is, well, then why did Paul have an eye infirmity and why did he tell Timothy to take a little wine for his messed up stomach and all of that? What if I told you there's answers for all of those things and it's not what you've been told? Would you believe me? I hope you never know. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that every promise is true in it. We can fully depend upon you and your promises. Because you have never never let us down. Lord, while we may be moved emotionally and we may be moved physically and and Lord, may get our eyes off of you. You never move. You stand strong. You're always there no matter what. Lord, we can depend on you. And we are grateful for all that you've done and continue to do in our lives. We thank you that you are just turning our hearts, Lord, in a way that we come closer to you. And we just hunger and thirst after righteousness, Lord, that we cannot help but to make you the forefront of every part of our lives, Lord. That we can be your image bearers through all the earth. Lord, taking your gospel, taking your spirit, taking the power that you have given us, Lord, to be your witnesses, Lord. Everywhere we go, may we not back down. May we stand up strong. May we be an example to this lost and dying world. Lord, we thank you so much for what you've done and continue to do in our lives. May you be blessed by everything that we say. May you be glorified in everything that we do. Lord, in every aspect of our lives, we are so grateful to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you Wednesday.